There are times when what happens during worship uh, requires me to push through in faith to still preach because what's happened in my heart uh, sort of motivates me to stand up and, and simply say amen and, and this has been one of those times. Thank you, worship team and, and honors choir. This has been, this has been good. It's been a good week in paradise this week. I'm telling you, if, if there were a thermostat mounted to a tree outside in this town this week, I wouldn't have touched it night or day all week. Would have you? That was good, good weather. Uh, it was just, it was perfect. It was something like I guess they would call paradise. I, yeah, that was, that was a well thought out humor. Um, <laughs> I'm curious this morning, uh, speaking of this last week, for how many of us, uh, by show of hands, does the 124 to 185 have any resonance or significance to us as Seventh-day Adventists? I'd just like to see show of hands. Um, and you, it's okay, you can look around, like, Go ahead. So up in the balcony? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're here too at church. Uh, so if you didn't know, uh, it's easy to do a little keyboard jockey research and come up with the significance that in annual council in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and uh, vote in regards to a unity document and what women's role in ministry plays and all of those pieces uh, in church has to be. And um, for some of us, we were watching and texting colleagues and back and forth and have strong convictions and feelings on both sides of the deal, and um, I was thinking about that this week. Um, I remember times where uh, when I was growing up, our family would be going somewhere one weekend or uh, had to do something some afternoon, and I was not on board. Like, I was just like, ah, rah, rah, rah. And my dad, in this snarky way he had with just this kindness and smile, he would say, man, Steve, it's so tough to be part of a family, isn't it? <laughs> He's like, wouldn't life be so much easier if you were all alone and it was only you and you could have your way all the time? And uh, of course, that didn't seem to calm, but I just remember that, that piece of dad saying, isn't it just rough? to be part of a family. You know, and there was part of me that was just like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to tell you. But there was another piece that was very sort of cognitive in my thinking that said, you know, uh, being part of a family takes listening to each other and being part of a collective. And we as Seventh-day Adventists are blessed to be part of a, a world church, to be part of something bigger than just Paradise, California, or even uh, Northern California Conference, or Pacific Union, or North American Division, or and those of you who understand that whole sort of structure. Um, I guess I would just say that this week there were moments where I was just like, yeah, that's hard to be part of a family that is diverse and thinking and talking and processing. Um, I think the other thing that makes it interesting for us as a world church, I'm sure that your family isn't like this, but uh, 
in our family, there are moments where we have tried to help our children understand that, you know, there are some conversations that happen in the family that don't necessarily have to be broadcast to the world. And when you have those conversations as a family, you think to yourself, well, yeah, but shouldn't every, wouldn't the ideal be that everything that gets talked about in-house could be shared to the world? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? And maybe that's God's sort of gift of the internet to the Adventist world family to say, hey, by the way, uh, what's talked about in the family is being talked about everywhere. And uh, that adds a dynamic and all of those things. But um, I simply want to say that just sort of as a, I don't know, antidote this morning to say that I am grateful to be part of a world church. I'm, I'm glad to be part of a church family, not only in the local context, but in the broader field. And sometimes that takes us learning to live in the same house with each other with different opinions. And um, so, amen? Okay. Um, how many of you know what the sermon title is this morning? I'm just curious. Georgia, on my mind. Anybody know who sings that? Ray Charles. Ray Charles at his best. Anyone under 100 years old who uh, knows who Ray Charles is? You know, this is, where, this is where the generational interplay begins to be interesting. Uh, we ran summer camps in Rocky Mountain Conference for the last six years, and uh, a couple of summers ago, I was hanging out with the new staff. It was during staff week, and I'm, I'm just hanging out, and we're talking about stuff, and something comes up in conversation, and I wind up quoting uh, a movie, Tombstone. I don't know what the quote was, but uh, these college students just looked at me like, like, What? I'm like, nah, I'm being relevant, youth pastor guy. That's a great Western movie. And they're like, is that some sort of old movie? <laughs> it's like, no, it's Tombstone. And one of the girls there clicks into her phone and she's like, Ch -ch -ch. and she's like, uh, it was made in 1994. I was born in 2000. <laughs> and I was like, there went my attempt at, you know, generational relevance, but, uh, so Ray Charles is even further back on the chart, but uh, Georgia, always on my mind, all through the day. I've heard some quipe that Ray Charles must not have gotten out much if he'd have made it to Hawaii or the Bahamas or maybe Paradise, California. Uh, he would have had something else on his mind, but it's the, it's the official song of the state of Georgia. Georgia, always on my mind. Um, I want to ask the question this morning, what's What's always on your mind? I heard a, a preacher one time say, what if we had the technology that was sort of like a radar gun and we could point it at you and what's always on your mind would come up on the screen and we could check that out. And we could point it over here and it'd come up on the screen and we'd know what that was. Relax, we don't have that kind of technology. I get nervous when I see a radar gun being pointed at me and I know that... Uh, there's an awareness of that small percentage of my life, which is not quite in line with what maybe it should be. But, uh, you know, if we were to take that and point it at Jesus, you wouldn't have to worry. You wouldn't have to worry what was always on his mind. Um, you know, what is always consuming our thoughts 
is an interesting question. I know business people who always have the next business deal on their mind. It's always in their, their next thing. I know leadership type people who always have the next reorg or the next uh, target challenge visioning piece on their mind. I know socialites who always have the next uh, social gathering or party or concert or something in their calendar and that's the next thing on their mind. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, social media gives you kind of a glimpse into this, I think, which I hope isn't always clear, because if you look at mine, uh, it looks like I think about Jeeps a lot more than I do, but uh, I've noticed that when someone gets into a new romantic relationship, man, that new Jim or Betty Lou is, is always on their mind, or at least always on their news feed. I've got one friend that's just, uh, man, after a long, long time, I think he's found the right one, and I think there's going to be a wedding. Man, that's like, I used to see pictures of, of mountain summits and outdoor trips and rock climbing and all of this stuff. And seriously, for the last three months, all I've seen is pictures of him and this girl on there. And now they're doing these professional photo shoots or somebody's doing like organized photo shoots. And uh, what's, always, what's always on our mind? Um, I don't think we would have to worry if we pointed that at Jesus, what was always on his mind. I want to propose to you that if we put what was Jesus on Jesus' mind and heart, primarily, his primary preoccupation, I think if we did that and it came up on the screen, I think it would be people. People were always on Jesus' mind. Rich people, poor people, young people, old people, forgotten people, sought after people. Well-known people, obscure people. People were always on the mind of Jesus. No one in history has displayed such a preoccupation with people. He invested all of his time in people. Everywhere he went, people were the highest priority. Even in the most poignant moments where Jesus learns of the, the, um, the news of John the Baptist's death and he says to the disciples, let's find a way, a place to escape and sort of recover, regroup. Uh, if you read the story, they go to the other side, but the crowd had figured out where he was going. And Jesus put higher priority on the people and we get the feeding of the 5,000 and they leave that scenario and they go over to another place they're trying to get somewhere else and they're greeted by the demoniac and high drama and high emotional uh, investment is required of Jesus on the tail of those really high stakes encounters with people. But over and over and over again, Jesus places people as highest priority in his mission. He doesn't shirk or steer away from them. He doesn't turn them away. Jesus always had people on his mind, which I think begs to ask the question, what was it that enabled Jesus to keep people paramount in his experience? What was it that, that drove people to over and over lead and guide and direct and instruct the disciples to have that as their highest priority? What was it that kept people on Jesus' mind? Now, I'm sure there are more, but I bring three of them to you this morning. And if you want to jot them down or keep them in your memory, we're going to walk through those things and we're just going to kind of take time and sink into it. But I want to do it in the context of John chapter 3 because, and if you turn in your Bible there, we'll kind of look at the broader context. John chapter 3, you know the story. Nicodemus, 
As a ruler of the Jews, he no doubt has been part of the conversations of the nuances of whether, where to try to trip Jesus up in his theology, where to sort of entrap him. He's been part of those circles. In the end, his heart is drawn to Jesus. We know that he uh, tries to find a time that is sort of low risk for his reputation to encounter Jesus, finds Jesus by night. Jesus breaks down to him some of the simplicity of the rebirth experience through baptism and the Holy Spirit, and, and Jesus senses the openness of, Zacchaeus, of uh, Nicodemus's heart, and this is where Jesus blurts out what is most important to him, to Nicodemus. And it's verse 16. A lot of us who grew up in church, I would say all of us who grew up in church, committed this to memory early on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to look at this in the reality that Jesus was at this moment able to unload for Nicodemus what he really wanted to say. So notice that right on the heels of that, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge it, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, if you really want to know, I mean, you know, Nicodemus started this query out by saying, hey, could you parse the nuance of theology in regards to what must a man do to be saved, etc." And in the end, Jesus unloads and says, if you really want to know, like if you want this to be simple for you, people are on the heart of the Father. He sent me, not to judge, but to save. That's what's always on the mind of God. Jesus breaks it down for him in that place. What was it that allowed Jesus to have this this unerring focus on people on his heart? I suggest to you that number one, Jesus knew the heart of the Father more than anyone else. This is where you get this in John 3.16 where Jesus says, listen, God loved the world, which has its own theological beauty in it that Jesus didn't come save us from an angry God, but it was because of God's love that he sent Jesus. Jesus said, look, this is not my loving heart trying to defend you from the vicious, angry God. This is because you are always on the heart of the Father that I come to you to save, not to judge. Jesus knew the heart of the Father more than anyone else, and he continued to teach this to the disciples. Remember, there are stories that illustrate this. At one time, the disciples were refused passage through a remote area of Samaria, and they were really irritated by this. And so one of them blurts out and says, look, would you like us to call down lightning from heaven to strike these guys? And Jesus deftly peels that back and says, listen, if you knew the heart of the Father in any way, you would know that he values the Samaritans much more than assuaging the wounded pride of 12 Jews. Like the heart of the Father loves these people. He would continually rearrange the value furniture of the disciples' lives to place highest value on people. In fact, it was from the very beginning call in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus says, look, y'all are fishermen, and that's great, and there's nothing wrong with the fishing business. In fact, scholars think Peter continued his fishing business throughout his ministry. Where else did they get the boats? Where else did they go fishing to find 
Coins to pay taxes post-crucifixion. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And his fishing buddies say, we are too. And you wind up finding them in a boat. They didn't have to go source that somewhere else. Jesus says, nothing wrong with the fishing business, the car sales business, the construction business, the medical business. But from now on, if you're my disciples, your primary business will be the people business. You'll be fishing for men. And Jesus had to keep bringing them back to this time and time again that their primary goal would be fishing business. Right on the heels of the story of the disciples uh, being refused passage and, and this whole piece, Jesus breaks out with three of the most significant stories of the gospel accounts, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Clearly defining for the disciples what the highest value of heaven was, and that's people. That whole three-story climaxes in Luke 15, verse 10, where Scripture says very clearly, Jesus says this, all heaven erupts in cosmic celebration when one sinner turns to life in God. If you want to know what heaven values most, it's people. Jesus modeled this. He taught it. And we could spend most of this morning on it, I think, But maybe I'll wrap that section by saying, think of the last moments of Christ's life before he breathed his last on Calvary. And it was people on his mind. While being nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive these people. These people don't know what they're doing. He looks at his mom, he's caring for his mom and says, Mom, Take comfort in your son, John, your mom. He was worried about his mom in those last moments. Perhaps the last thought on Jesus' mind after having the conversation with the thief is I got one more lost guy. One more for the kingdom. No one in earth's history ever displayed such a preoccupation with people than Jesus. Because he knew the heart of the Father. He knew the heart of the Father. So loved the world that that's why he was here. So number one, Jesus had a preoccupation with people because he knew the heart of the Father. Number two, Jesus understood eternal realities. He understood eternal realities for what they were. He over and over would say, uh, our days are numbered and they aren't guaranteed. Uh, Jesus would say, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven, Jesus would say. And for Jesus, the only treasure was people because he knew that that was the only treasure that could pass through to the other side and the other side is coming, he would say. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Moth and rust corrupts everything else, but people have eternal value. Second Peter says, look, it's all going to melt with fervent heat. Why are you bothering with it in the first place? Invest yourself in people. They are what matter most. Jesus says, what's a profit if a man gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What's a profit? Because for Jesus, people were the highest value. This brought, in Jesus' experience, I think, a sense of calculated urgency. He didn't waste time or mince words. It's what drove him to, instead of uh, sort of be 
um, congenial about a rich young ruler's wealth and power and influence, he would slip straight to the point and say, but where are you with God? It gave him a calculated urgency. He knew that not only were the days numbered of his ministry, but, but each person's days are numbered and the other side's coming. Eternal realities. Jesus understood eternal realities and it drove him to have this, this calculated urgency to share and reach people. Because he said the other side's coming. Number three is that Jesus saw potential in people. So number one, Jesus knew the heart of the Father. Number two, he understood eternal realities. And number three, Jesus saw potential in people. He just looked at people differently. Great business tycoons do this. They see something. They just have this sort of intrinsic ability to see value in a product or a service before it's time. And they buy it, they build it, they invest it, they market it. They have this, this uncanny ability to sort of see what the world needs before the world sees the value in it and promote that. It's a fascinating gift. I think sports coaches do the same thing. I have a friend down in Central California. He's a college pitching coach. A couple months ago, I was having a conversation with him. His name is Corey, and he said, Steve, it's so weird. He says, let me watch a pitcher for an hour, and I can tell you how fast I can increase his speed by the, time of the, by the end of the season. He just has this knack. I said, wow, tell me about that, Corey. Break that down. Like, how do you do that? And that's where the conversation kind of went, because he said, Steve, I don't know. I can just see it. Jesus could do this with people. Like who else? Who else could have seen the hidden philanthropist in Zacchaeus? No one else was seeing that. They were seeing all sorts of other stuff. But Jesus, when he looked at Zacchaeus, he saw who he could hang the financial burden of the church in the early formative days and said, I can use that guy. Who else would have seen the stable the stabilizing effect of leadership in the wild, uncouth, hard, fast-paced Peter. <laughs> Jesus just looked at people differently. He saw what they could be. Who else could have seen the worshiping woman in Mary Magdalene, currently dressed as a woman of the evening? Jesus, Jesus looked at people differently. And he treated people differently. It had this almost irrational optimism. Like anything's possible with this girl. What could this guy become with the Holy Spirit unleashed in his life? Anything's possible with this guy. When you look at people differently, you treat people differently. And Jesus did this. Not only did he know the heart of the Father, he understood eternal realities, but he just... He looked at people differently. He saw potential in them. Anything's possible with the Holy Spirit's power. And now here's where I would like to turn a page in this talk. I actually even have it written so that I will turn the page. Romans 8.29 says that the ultimate goal of a Christ follower 
should be totally conformed into the image of Christ. Which means that that our hope and desire as followers of Jesus would to be so like him, to be so like him, that we are conformed, as Romans 8 says, to the image of Christ. This is where the rabbi and disciple thing comes into play. There was a saying in early times, let the dust of your rabbi's feet fall upon your head. In other words, you're following the rabbi so closely that the dust his feet are making are falling, is falling on your head. In Jesus' time, there were many rabbis and teachers, and people could be identified by, or maybe I should say it this way, the rabbi of which the disciple was following could be identified by the language that the disciples used. In other words, you could recognize the voice of the rabbi through the voice of the disciple. Is this making sense? Maybe let me say it this way. You know how you, uh, when you hang out with someone, your best friend, for a long time, you pick up each other's sayings, and all of a sudden you tell some joke that you picked up from your friend, you finish each other's sentences, that's, that's the whole rabbi-disciple thing. And that's really what Romans 8 is spinning off of, is to say, look, if Jesus is who you are following, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if he is the one you long to emulate, then you should be so like him that it's, it's almost like talking to him. This is actually very interesting. It's the, it's the problem Peter found himself in at the trial when that servant girl knew he was a follower of Jesus because he talked like him. And Peter consciously switched it up a bit trying to get out of that deal. But Jesus... Peter had been a disciple. He'd been with Jesus. The way Jesus talked and the way Jesus thought had become the way he was. And so even in the unconscious moments, people are like, you've been with Jesus. In the book of Acts, the same thing happened with the disciples where they're like, and the people took note of them that they had been with Jesus. That's what Romans 8 calls us to be. That we are to be as a church conformed to the image of Christ so that what was on his mind all of the time is what is on our mind and our heart. That if you were point the scanner, the skull soul scanner, I guess it could be a skull scanner too, right? If you were to point the soul scanner at Jesus and it came up on the screen and you were pointed at his church, the screen would stay the same. And so what would that look like? What would that look like if the church truly had the same preoccupation with people that Jesus did, that Jesus does? That if truly today, on this day, we formally declare, formally declare, that I'm primarily in the people business, Don't worry, this does not mean that you go out and quit your job on Monday or whatever day rotation you have. Scripture's clear in the priesthood of all believers. You're all full-time ministers. Some of you are just cleverly disguised in effective places that I can't reach because this is my day job. It's my night job too sometimes, most of the time. 
What if we're primarily in the people business? That in the same way that Jesus was radically inclusive, arms wide open, that that's the way we lived as a church. Anyone's welcome. A few years ago, I processed through some survey data that was, it rocked me in my thinking. The data showed that the longer a person was a member of church, the fewer evangelistic invitations they gave. Which meant the longer someone was in church, the fewer invitations to church or invites to gatherings or sharing of Jesus they did. That was troubling to me. The data also showed that uh, the longer a person was a member of a church, the fewer close friendships they had outside church. And I just thought, that should be the opposite, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be the opposite that, that the longer we're a follower of Jesus, the more we are following in his steps, the more dust of the rabbi's feet that falls on our heads, the way he lived should be the way we live. The focus on people should be that way from us. It should be the opposite. That we should become like the heart of the Father and know that if the heart of the Father was willing to sacrifice His Son for people, then shouldn't we make a few sacrifices for those around us to better their life, to ease their pain, to bring them closer to the Father whose heart is invested in them. So as we know the heart of the Father as a church, we become more invested in people. And I just pray that that's our journey in the next few years here, that we, we want to know the Father's heart. That what happened during worship this morning is the most important piece of what happens when we come together as a church. That our hearts become in line with what He wants for us and those around us. Listen, the Seventh-day Adventist church ought to understand eternal realities not arrogantly, but confidently better than those around us. We have an understanding of prophecy and an understanding of current world events. We know the other side's coming. We understand those world realities. I mean, <laughs> eternal realities are in our name, Advent. Amen. We ought to understand those eternal realities and that ought to bring into us as a church this sense of calculated urgency to get the word out. I was in pastor's meeting this, morning, or this week in our office, and, and Dan Garrison and I talked about the last 10 chapters of the great controversy. If you need a reset in your eternal realities and where we are in earth's history, then read those 10 chapters this week and let that sink into your heart a bit. We understand eternal realities. Had another moment that really brought this to my attention. Brittany was helping me send out that little come to church y'all message. Got into the computer program and, and she said, Who, which one's the list? Julie, you know the, the list. You, know, you can check which ones you want on the list. And, and there was, uh, there's some that I was comfortable checking off of the list. Like, you know, it's, um, people are transferred out. We don't need to send those. And some have moved out of town and those kinds of pieces. There's a piece on that list that is still kind of in the rotating piece. And it, it's people, it's deceased. And we didn't send the message to them because our theology is clear. Um, 
Uh, listen, that's the eternal reality. There's people on our phone list that we clicked with a button because, because they're not with us anymore. This, I think, became really even more poignant to me because um, a very good friend of ours, she's 28 years old, uh, newly graduated physical therapist, married to my old senior pastor's son, her name's Carla, on her way home from work, talking to her phone, on her phone to her friend this week, and a guy randomly stepped out in front of her in Florida and discharged five rounds, and she took one to the chest, and she's in surgery and, and critical care, and we're kind of getting those details yesterday. Uh, like, yeah, eternal realities are a big deal. We ought to understand that as a people. We need to see the potential in people. If we would look at people the way Jesus did, we would treat them differently. I think people are longing to have an example to follow. You know, what if it was said, you know, this is troubling too. I think Christians have a bit of a reputation for being a bit bigoted and opinionated and but what if, what if those in our community could truly say, man, I wish, I wish I loved people like my Christian friend does. I wish I was preoccupied by people like my Christian friends are. I wish I included people of different color like my Christian friends do. I wish I could see potential in broken people like my church friends can. Wish that, I could, wish that I could help broken people like Christian friends can. I want this to be our story. I'm going to invite our worship team up to lead us in our, our last song. As they're coming up, I just want to say, Jesus, thank you Thank you for being preoccupied with me. Thank you for the heart of the Father for me. Jesus, thank you for letting me be confronted by eternal realities. And Jesus, thank you for seeing potential in me. Because he does. No one in earth's history has been more preoccupied with you than Jesus. What a beautiful name. What a beautiful name it is.
dress up and play church. I think some of us came to church today because we need, we need a reset. And what was always on the mind of Jesus, we want it to be always on our mind too. And so this isn't an any pressure thing, but if it's just a moment where God says, you know what, I brought you to church because I'm going to have you walk forward and be part of the prayer up front because of this, then then just go ahead and do that. Some of us came to church today because we needed a reset. We got caught up in the, in the politics of church and percentages and vote splits and territories and tithe and offering percentages of North American world and all of those things. And, and we needed to come to church today and say, you know what, Jesus, when you think of the church, it's real faces, real hearts, a real pulse. And I'll just say I, I'm one of those that I'll stand here. That'll be, my, that'll be my call this morning. If you want to join me and just say, you know what, I, I want to reset what I think of when I think of church to be very much out of that corporate context and into the people thing, then uh, you can come up and stand next to me. And if there's none of you like that, that's okay. But um, I need a little of that this weekend. Um, just to say, Jesus, keep me people-centered, people-centered. And uh, some of us will be included in multiple of these things. It's kind of hard to walk up and back and forth twice, but 
Uh, some of us have been caught up in our, our job context or our education so much that our family uh, has begun to slide on the scale. So what we do for a living has become more of what we think about than who we make a living for. And if you would like to just say, Jesus, this Sabbath, uh, put my family back as paramount in my thinking and in my prayers, let that be my heart. Um, then, then if you would come forward too. Um, and then this one's a little bit more specific because, um, and there's a lot of us up and people are standing around, so you won't even stand out in this, but um, some of you know that you've got some grudges or some difficulties with people and you have a tendency to see them in the worst rather than in the best. And this morning you've been confronted by the fact that Jesus saw good potential in people. And so if there's a coworker or a family member or someone in the community or, or something that has done you wrong and, and um, you want to see them the way Jesus sees them, um, this is a moment to confess that and come forward and just say, Jesus, um, let me love people, even the ones that are difficult. That's, that's a big deal. And so, Jesus, this morning, we just want the dust from your feet to fall on our heads because we're following you closely. We want Romans 8 to be the reality of our church. That we're so conformed into your image that every day we seek the heart of the Father more closely. That every day we long to know the heart of the Father in a way that transforms the way we see people. Jesus, we ask that today you would bring about the clarity of eternal realities in our hearts. For some of us, you have done that shockingly in the last few months or days. Some of us are just coasting along, though, and needed this morning to say, listen, Treasure in heaven, treasure in heaven. And you've called us to see people differently, Jesus. Help us to see potential in each other because you have seen potential in us. And so Jesus, thank you for this morning and thank you for church. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Blessings.